And now we hear what he has to say through his word. So turn with me to the book of Philippians. Philippians chapter 2. We're going to read verses 1 through 18 of Philippians chapter 2, but pay particular attention to verses 14 through 16a, the, you know, the very beginning part of verse 16, because that is our text for this morning's sermon. Hear now the reading of God's word. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world holding fast the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. But even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. You too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. Take another moment to pray together. Father, thank you for your Son and for the Holy Spirit. We pray that he would move among us now and bring us to a better understanding of your word. Thank you for doing the work of sanctification in our lives. Remind us as our adoption as your children. In Jesus' name, amen. A certain Wikipedia article begins with these words. Just do it. 
is a trademark of shoe company Nike, coined in 1988 at an advertising agency. The founder of the agency credits the inspiration for his Just Do It Nike slogan to Death Row, Gary Gilmore's last words, let's do it. Sort of makes you think, doesn't it? About the slogan itself. Just do it. Do what? Execution? No thanks. I'll pass. You see, the slogan, just do it, as familiar as it might be, really requires context. What are we getting ourselves into? What are we signing up for? Death row and death row's execution? Nuh-uh. I don't want to just do that. And that's an important lesson for us as we attend to any part of scripture. It's not just the just do it Nike slogan that had its inception in a pretty dark idea. But every command requires a context for us to partake of that command, to respond to that command in the appropriate way. And that is absolutely and in every way true of the commands that you come across in Scripture. We'll revisit this idea, but it is... The founder, human founder of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, J. Gresson Machen, who said the fundamental difference between liberalism and Christianity is that liberalism is altogether in the imperative mood while Christianity announces a triumphant indicative, first, a gracious act of God. For a simpleton like me, that means liberalism, every other religion, honestly, comes at you saying, just do it, just do it, just do it, do this, do that, do the other thing. And sometimes they're right. Think about other people, care for your neighbor, don't do what you don't want done to yourself. Just do it, just do it. Christianity stands distinct as a religion of grace and the true religion by saying it begins with a statement, a triumphant indicative, what we call gospel, good news. And that gospel is something we just confessed by saying one of the free acts of God in redemption is making us children of God. That is the context you have to bring into the commands that God gives. And that is the context that is provided for us in our text from Scripture today. So we'll look at um, verses 2.14 through the very beginning of verse 16 under two points. Context, which we find in verse 15, and then action. Don't just do it. Pay attention to the context provided by God's word, the gospel, the good news, the triumphant indicative. And then proceed to all the action items, all the ways in which God does say, do this, do this, do this, don't do this, don't do this. 
So as I've said, the context is in verse 15, and then the action is throughout the entire text for today, 14 through the beginning of 16. And um, you children might enjoy this as a way to track along with the sermon. These two points, context and action, are entirely fleshed out by asking five questions. When it comes to the context, who, where, and when? Who, where, and when furnishes us with the context in which we live out the triumphant indicative, the good news, the gospel context. And then in verses 14 through 16a, we get to what and how. So our first point answers who, where, and when for context. And we'll just work through them. Let's begin with who. And we've already mentioned this at various points throughout the, sermon, uh, the worship service, that God identifies us, he tells us who we are, triumphant indicatives, the good news, not good advice, not merely good rules, but who you are as being good news and a result of what Jesus Christ has done, all ways of answering who you are. And that question has been answered multiple times already in the service. You are a chosen race, you are a royal priesthood, you are people of God's own possession. You are children of God, entitled to all of the privileges of the sons and daughters of God. You are those who once didn't know mercy, but now have received mercy. And one of those identifiers of who you are occurs right in our text for today. And I find it to be something unique in these very few verses that we're looking at, for a reason I pointed out last week that will mention once again today, because Paul is just loading up these verses with instructions, not just do it, but do this, do this, do this, don't do this. And in the middle of that, surrounded by be blameless and innocent, and then on the other side, above reproach, you see that term children of God. And I find that phrase to be unique in that we all understand that being blameless or innocent above reproach isn't what makes us children of anybody. The entire phenomenon of family and parents begetting children is apart from the performance of the child. So what you have here is very much the idea that because you are children of God, you ought to be blameless and innocent and above reproach, not to secure being a child of God. It's not what you earn or secure, but who you are. That's the context provided by even these very verses. Children of God is a term distinct from so many other elements to these verses, because it is who you are, gospel context, the fact that you are a brother or sister of the Lord Jesus Christ, and through that, a son or daughter of God the Father who so loved you that he sent Jesus Christ into the world to die for your sins and give you his righteousness and to add you to the number of the household of God himself as Father. That's who we are. That's what the church is. That's who you are. God is your father. 
when you pray the Lord's Prayer, our Father who art in heaven, you can think internally he's also my Father who is in heaven. He is the Father of his children, the head of the church, but uh, the Father of his children in the church, but also your particular Father who cares for you. So that answers the question of who and gets us off on the right track in considering the context, but it also places fairly early in the sermon the need to really profit from what is written in these verses. Is God your father? Is that something that is true of you? Can you say, not from memorization, our father which art in heaven, but on a personal level, my father who is in heaven? Can you say, I trust in the Lord Jesus Christ as the way, the truth, and the life, and I see in Jesus Christ that he is not ashamed to call me a sinner, a brother and sister in Christ. So I take him as my own. I trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. He is mine. I am his. And through that union with Jesus Christ, I understand God, the Father Almighty, to be my father. See, that, that context is important. Don't just do it. This will not be a sermon that is coming to you with moral, moralism and imperatives, the imperatives of liberalism. Be a good person. Fix your life with religion. It really works for some people. First and foremost, this is a sermon saying, come to the Lord Jesus Christ and worship in faith. Be a son or daughter in the Lord to God as your father. Take action now to be a child of God. And that's really the only way you're going to profit from the rest of the sermon. We don't need another Pharisee. We don't need another false religion with a Christian flavor to it. The triumphant indicative the context of the gospel, the good news, is essential. Looking to God as Father, either for the 5,000th time or for the first time, we can then profit from the rest of what is in these verses. And it is interesting that in the context is not just who you are, a child of God, as we've established in the living room of God the Father Almighty, so to speak, by coming to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ today and hearing from our God who speaks through his word by the power of his Holy Spirit, that could lead you to a very glamorous view of what it is to be a Christian, not understanding the difficulties involved. So Paul, in verse 15 also goes on in the context, not just who you are, children of God, but where you are and when you are. Who are we? Children of God. Where are we? In the world. When are we? In the middle of a crooked and perverse generation. Isn't that amazing that that was written 2,000 years ago or almost 2,000 years ago? You maybe think back and consider just how wonderful it must have been to receive the Holy Spirit in such an amazing way and to 
receive a letter from the Apostle Paul writing to you and, and from his own pen by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, getting communication from none other than the Apostle Paul, who is bringing to your understanding all sorts of glorious things to see about what Jesus Christ did while here on earth and what he's continuing to do in the church. And the Holy Spirit and the Apostle Paul and the saints in that first church are turning the world upside down, so to speak, as the pagan world is gradually converted to paganism, uh, converted to Christianity. And Paul just blasts away all of those romantic thoughts, saying they're in the world in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. It's the same world Jesus Christ was sent to. It's the same world that crucified Jesus Christ. And it's a crooked and perverse generation. This interesting use of language because it means not only crooked, but crooked and twisted. It's so sinful. It's doubly twisted. It's crooked and twisted. Warped. Where are we in the world? When are we in a generation? In the middle of that generation that is crooked and perverse. It's astonishing that when it comes to that, you can tune into any TV show or any news report and see the truth of that reality. When it comes to recognizing that the world we live in is broken, crooked, and twisted, and perverse, it's the universal appraisal of it from all men. TV shows based on murder and investigation. Relationships that should nourish us are broken. Divorce, adultery, all the stuff of drama. With our news reports, we honestly get to the point where we have to shut it off, put it away, because it gets to a toxic level because we live in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. And it was true 2,000 years ago. You see, the, the gospel context is astonishing. It's always relevant. It always applies to your life. You don't need to look too hard to say what was written in ancient times, thousands of years ago, before the automobile, before the personal computer, before the printing press, before the airplane, before the United States of America. So long ago is still true today. Here I am. I don't even need the Bible to tell me this. In so many ways, with death all around and crime everywhere and policemen to fight crime and lawyers to work out the law, in theory. It's a crooked and perverse generation. Does anybody spend any amount of time thinking about politics without coming to that conclusion? And Paul says, here's where you are. Here's when you are. Here's the world that you live in. And there's so much that is going on with Paul. I call this to your attention so frequently, but what could have possibly motivated Paul to have joy from a Roman prison? 
in the midst of the world, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. What motivated him was that he was a child of God. He could look to Jesus Christ and say, God sent his own son into the world, into a crooked and perverse generation. And that son of God did his work perfectly and now offers salvation to sinful men and women. And Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters through their faith in him. And he makes you sons of God through Jesus Christ. Later today, you can read John chapter 17, the Lord Jesus Christ's own prayer for you, in which he says, I send them out into the world into a crooked and perverse generation. And what mo one of the things that motivated Paul from a Roman prison, or at least from Roman house arrest, bondage, chains, and prison, of a pagan empire and a pagan tyranny, was he was a child of God writing to children of God, providing that triumphant indicative, that good news, the gospel context saying this is who you are even though where you are is in the world and when you are is in the middle of a crooked and perverse generation and now having spent the majority of the time on the context on the triumphant indicative on the good news the gospel context we are equipped we're furnished we're prepared to look at all the action that comes in these verses, all of the do it. Well, what should we do then? How should we then live? And that is one answer. Shine. Verse 15. I know in the NASB it says appear but the real meaning of the word behind the English word appear is shine. Shine as stars amidst the darkness. Start shining and continue to shine on, lighting up the darkness in the middle of the crooked and perverse generation of the world in which you live. Shine as light. Shine as lights in the world. I just want to call your attention here to some other portions of the New Testament because it's so, so rich in considering that we are called to do this by being children of God. Who else? shone as a light amidst the darkness. Jesus Christ, of course, and we read from his own words, the red letters of the Bible, at least in some Bible. John chapter 8, verse 12. Jesus spoke, saying, I am the light of the world, he who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. You see how even in that verse, Jesus Christ is saying, 
follow me, I am the light of the world. But through me, you become light, the lights that shine in the darkness. And I don't want to forget that. We'll come back to it in just a moment. Just, just the very idea of shining is profound and wonderful. But here, note for a moment that Jesus Christ is the light of the world and says he is. Very interestingly, you can turn over to Matthew chapter 5 and see the same Jesus say something consistent with what he says in John 8, 12, but also different. The same Jesus in John chapter 5, verses 14 and 16 says, You are the light of the world. Let your light shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Jesus Christ says, I am the light of the world, that in darkness we partake of his light, and then in Matthew 5 says, through that light, you are the light of the world. Doesn't that make sense of where we are? Jesus Christ isn't here in the flesh. He's not preaching the sermon. He's not among us in bodily form, though he is here by the Spirit. And we recognize the activity of the Lord Jesus Christ as taking place through the church to which he says, you are the light of the world. I send you into the world. I send you into the world, into the midst of a crooked generation. It is dark. Shine there as the light of the world. One more place. John chapter 1. So back to the Gospel of John which begins by the same language. John chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. It's a powerful darkness. It's a very crooked and perverse generation. It's a very fallen world. Look at verses 9 through 11. There was the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. Only one creator, only one redeemer, and the creator of the world, its creation doesn't know its creator And those so crooked and perverse that they are in desperate need of redemption don't know the Redeemer and won't know the Redeemer. In fact, crucify the Redeemer and live lives in rebellion against the Redeemer. His own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become, oh, look at that, children of God to those who believe in his name. Gospel context, the light of the world, and if you were tracking with what I read, it it says when he was in the world, he's not in the world anymore, you are, as his children, as the lights, shining amidst the darkness, fortified by a gospel context, a triumphant indicative, 
understanding that even as Jesus shined as the Son of God, you ought to shine as sons and daughters of that same God and Father, so that others might see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. That's what you should do, shine. But how? And here's, you know, the, the bulk of what we read in these verses. It's what we looked at last week in a negative sense. Do all things without grumbling and disputing. Do everything without complaining and arguing. There's a place for lament and letting grief and hurtful thoughts, making that known to God. But there is always a sinful way of arguing, disputing, complaining, grumbling. And we can shine amidst the darkness simply by keeping ourselves in check, saying, by the power of the Holy Spirit, though I am so often tempted to complain and argue, I'm called to shine as a child of God, a son or daughter of God, in a way that others see that I'm not complaining and I'm not arguing, that even in the arduous day in and day out of life, I look to Jesus Christ and partake of his light. So negatively, no complaining or arguing. But positively, in verse 15, there's three instructions. Be blameless. Be innocent. Be above reproach. In fact, prove yourselves to be this way. I think the most helpful word here, oddly enough, in verse 15, as I've already belabored, but here's a slightly different take on it, is the word children. Obviously, the, the gospel context, the triumphal indicative, that's all critical but and essential. But if you look at those three commands, um, be blameless, be innocent, be above reproach, and prove yourself to be those things, Children just do a better job at understanding that because they have parents that go out on, you know, the all-too-infrequent date. The babysitter comes over. They're in a situation sort of like the Philippian church where Paul is saying, hey, I'm absent from you, right? I'm, I'm not in your presence. So I know you're children, but I want you to be blameless children, innocent children, Children that are above reproach. And that's what he's getting at. That's the how to shine before others. To go through life thinking, is this blameless, not before men, but before God? Is this innocent, not before men and their standards, but before God? Is this above reproach, which does have more of the idea of being before other people? Will a non-Christian look at me for doing this and judge me for it? Am I behaving even worse than an unbeliever while I'm at work? Or with a smart device or the screen of a computer? Go through life thinking these thoughts. Not as reason to despair, 
but ultimately as reason to rejoice in your Christian faith that I am a children of God. I am not enslaved to sin. Sin does not have dominion over me. I don't need to complain. I don't need to argue in a sinful way. I can be blameless before the face of God. I can be innocent before the face of God. I can even be above reproach in the estimation of others who are just dying to label me as one more hypocrite in the church. I especially love what Paul says in um, the beginning of verse 16 because it's Again, brings you back to children who are left at home when mom and dad go out on a date. Holding fast the word of life. Children, hold fast to the instruction of your parents. They have your safety in mind. And if you don't do what they say, they might, well, I won't say that. If you want to live prosperously, hold fast to the word of your parents. Hold fast to the word of life. He's your father in heaven. Every law has your good in mind. Every instruction is for your good. He's not a tyrant. He's not a despot. He loves you. His word is a word of life to you. It's a fence that guards you. It's a fence that protects you. It's a fence that provides security for you. It's a fence that enables you to so enjoy the property of the world, the, the world of God. He hedges you in. And it's not just negative. It's not just here's the things you can't do. It's positive. Be blameless. Be pure. Be above reproach. Glorify God. Enjoy God. Be glad in the, the Lord, you're righteous. Rejoice. Know the joy of the Lord is your strength. Hold fast to the word of God. And even when things are arduous and upsetting and you can't see out of a situation and you realize what you don't want to go through is something you have to go through, that there's no way around, that you can't retreat. Even then, you're furnished. You're equipped. Hold fast to the word of God. Identify with the Lord Jesus Christ. The greatest need in your life is the one that your sin created, and he's taking care of that. He forgives you of his sin, your, your sin. He delivers you from death promises you resurrection and then says even in the arduous task that is before you hold fast to the word of God if you're not experiencing the joy of the Lord as your strength if you don't really feel comforted by that if that's more depressing to hear than encouraging then for the joy before you endure the cross despising the sh shame Understanding your context that the Son of God was put into the midst of a crooked and perverse generation in this world and for the joy set before him endured the cross despising the shame and now you are called to do that too. He doesn't consider you as anything other than a son or a daughter. 
So he calls you to bear a cross the same way he called his own son to bear the cross. And with all of that action, the what, shine before others. The things to do negatively, don't complain, don't argue. The things to do positively, be blameless, be innocent, be above reproach, hold fast to the word of truth as children. Don't just do it. Don't just do it. There is found the most fundamental difference between liberalism and Christianity. Liberalism is altogether in the imperative mood. Christianity announces first a triumphant indicative, a gracious act of God. Adoption is an act of God. As sons and daughters of God the Father Almighty, through the Lord Jesus Christ, who is also your Savior, and the Holy Spirit, who empowers you and indwells you as God's children, hold fast to the word of truth and shine in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. Father in heaven, deliver us from just doing it. Help us to appreciate who we are, fearfully and wonderfully made, those who constantly need to evaluate the context of situations, constantly in need of understanding who we are by your grace. Bless us now as we go forth into a week in this world in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.